to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Jesus truly is our high priest and can empathize with us in every situation. Every pain, trial, hurt, and betrayal, he endured. He suffered and learned obedience through his suffering. His obedience cost him death, but gained us eternal life. Cheryl's message titled, The Problem of Dullness. What the New Living Translation is to the King James, the Septuagint would be to the Hebrew Bible. So that's why sometimes when you look at these quotations and you go to where it's drawn from, you're like, wait, it's different. That's why. So we know this about the author of Hebrews. He knew Greek. And he had the Septuagint. That's why a lot of people believe this was written by Apollos, who was an Alexandrian Jew. This is just a sideline, and boy, am I so off my notes. But it's so interesting to me. But it was written, um, he knew. And remember how we read in Acts how he could prove from the scriptures eloquently, irresistibly, how Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so every quotation in Hebrews is from the Septuagint. But what he says here is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, you're saying, doesn't begotten mean I just sired you? I mean, you're my son. It does, but this was the chosen son. So in that day, a father, a Hebrew father, even a Roman father, would choose one of his sons to be the heir, to be the one who would take over the family, who would be the one to carry out the father's wishes, the father's desire to carry on the family name, to carry on the family traditions, to carry on the family business, to carry on the family battles. Today I have begotten you. Philip II of Macedonia had many sons, but he chose Alexander, his son, who became Alexander the Great when he was 16 years old. And he publicly had a ceremony where he announced that he had begotten Alexander. And now Alexander would be sent out at 16 as the general over all the troops of Philip II. All the troops of Philip II were now at the disposal of Alexander as he was begotten by the father to go out and fight the battles of Philip II. We know he was absolutely victorious. Later, in 67 AD, Vespasian, who was a general, who was the general in charge of the Holy Land of bringing the Hebrews back into subjection to Rome, he becomes the emperor of Rome. And when he becomes the emperor of Rome, he chooses his son Titus. He had many sons, but he chose Titus in a public ceremony and announced, today I have begotten you. And what he did at that moment was he put all his troops 
under the jurisdiction and authority of Titus. And Titus went and began to fight the battles of his father and bring all of the nations, not just the Jews, but the Egyptians, anyone who was in rebellion, he went, fought against them and brought them under subjection to his father, the emperor in Rome. I say this because I want you to understand that these people understood what it meant that Jesus was the son of God, the begotten. They didn't think because there's this horrific doctrine going around that God is a cosmic child abuser. And I had this man that I was sharing Jesus with down at the beach who said, I don't want to listen to anybody that would kill their child. And I'm like, man, you don't have a clue. Talk about pearls before swine and holy things before dogs. I was you know, getting a little mad. I wanted to say, then go to hell if you want to. Go to hell if you want to. But I didn't. No, the grace and love of Jesus overrode me. But I was like so mad. You know, it's like, don't you understand? This is glorious. This is awesome. Jesus was 33. He didn't go like (laughs) to the cross with, well, we're going to hear about this. Let's go on. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a higher order, a holier order. And there, it predates Aaron's appointment. It is an order that Abraham recognized and respected. It is both a royal and priestly order, whereas Aaron's priesthood was limited to priesthood alone. But this is a different order. And we are going to get more into this in chapter six and especially in chapter seven. We're just going to explode it. We're going to pound it. But in verse seven, we're told that Jesus was human. See, he had to be taken among men, right? And it says he had days of his flesh. Jesus lived in a human body. We're told that he offered up prayers and supplications. And it says vehement cries or strong cries, pleadings, and, and, and battle cries. I mean, this is deep. He wept before God who was able to save him from death. Jesus was fully human and fully God. He had the full human experience. He prayed, he wept, and he had God say no to his prayers. It was important that Jesus pray and say, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me because he had to know what it felt like for us when God says no to our prayers. Did you ever think about that? He said no to the Holy Son and said, you must. So that when God says no to us and you must, Jesus understands. He can empathize with us. We're told again in verse eight, he was not exempted from suffering, though he was the son of God. That he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That's the Greek word, methano. And it means he increased his knowledge. You see, Jesus as the son of God is God himself. He knew suffering theoretically. But now he knows it experientially. He felt it. It's one thing to talk about it. And it's another thing to experience it. It's the difference between being a heart surgeon and a heart patient. Jesus says the heart surgeon became the heart patient. He went through the school of suffering. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He felt the whole human experience. He knows the cost of our obedience. And I want you to think of this. The cost of his obedience was death. And the cost of our obedience is life. The cost of 
His obedience meant bearing the weight of the sin of the world. The cost of our obedience results in freedom from sin. His obedience meant separation from God. And our obedience means reconciliation to God. His obedience meant becoming a curse. So our obedience could result in being blessed. And then verse 9 It says, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Jesus accomplished and completed his mission. He perfected it. He fulfilled the appointment of high priest. He did everything that was necessary as high priest in bringing us before God, in making atonement for our sins. He is the author, the reason, the cause, the initiator of our salvation. He is the way of our salvation. He is the reason and the means by which anyone who obeys can be saved. And he is eternal. He is always and forever the means of salvation, constant and unchanging. We'll get into more of this in chapter 7. The author wants to go so much deeper. The author wants to take these Hebrews so much deeper. But he senses that they're glazing over. He senses that they're already dull, but he wants to take them into the glory of Melchizedek for them to see the relation between Melchizedek and the glory of this priesthood and the greatness and the superiority of Jesus' order. These are things that are hard to explain. You have to listen attentively. You have to want to know them. You're going to have to repeat them. You're going to have to think them out. They're going to take time. Because understanding comes by a desire to understand. These are things that the believers should be ready to hear and perceive. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk, not solid food. These believers were falling so far short of all that God had for them. And that's seen in in their willingness to turn around to the baser things, to go back to the rituals. They did not understand the glory that was theirs in Jesus Christ. And so they were becoming dull. These are people who were dismayed by God's word, ready to argue with God's word rather than putting themselves under the authority of God's word. It was not that they thought too much about these things, that they thought that they overthought things. And I'll have people say, well, you know, I think I just overthink things when it comes to the Bible. No, no, you don't. You haven't thought it out far enough. I love how the Bible is always telling us to think. You know, Islam does not tell people to think. It says, don't think, don't ask questions. You're not allowed to ask any questions or think it out. But Christianity says, think. God says in Isaiah, come, let us reason. The Bible is always telling us to think. Jesus says, count the cost. Think it out. Think it out. Think it out. If you're dismayed, it's because you haven't gone deep enough. You haven't thought it out enough. Not that you've thought too little about it. You need to give attention to it. It needs to be processed. It needs to be understood. One of the best questions you can ask yourself as you read is why? It's not a question to be avoided when you come to the Bible. Why? Why did Jesus, why did Jesus 
only partially heal the blind man and then fully. Why? Oh, when you begin to look at the why, don't be afraid of the why. When you take the time to think it out, to process it, you are going to receive so many glories and so many spiritual insights. But these people needed milk rather than solid food. They needed the basic principles of God's word. Basic principles, how they were born again, that Jesus is the son of God, why it was that his sacrifice availed. But the author wanted to take them deeper into greater truths, to understanding the incarnation and the Trinity and the rapture and the work of the Holy Spirit and the power of faith. From this point forward, he's going to talk about how Jesus is after the order of Melchizedek, how Jesus is the better covenant, how Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, how Jesus is the ultimate temple, how Jesus is the power of God, how Jesus is the better promise of God. And he wants to take them so deep because these truths will revolutionize these lives, their lives. These truths will give them the power of faith so that they themselves will be able to have great exploits like those in Hebrews chapter 11. And he says, it's great to have milk. Peter says that we're supposed to be nourished by the sincere milk of the word. But there comes a time to get off the milk and into the meat. For those of you that are vegans, to get off the milk and into the broccoli. It just, there's a time to develop your teeth, to develop your taste buds, to know how to appreciate food rather than throwing it, to know how to prepare the meal. But he says, you're still unskilled in the word of righteousness. It's time to become skilled in the word of righteousness. Solid food is for those who are full age, verse 14, or mature, who have their senses exercised. Exercise, there it is. You're lifting those weights of the word to discern both good and evil. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says to Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, when you are in the word of God and your senses are sharp, you know where to apply what scripture to what situation. You know how to apply the promise to the trial. You know where to apply the sufficiency of God's grace to the inadequacy of your own humanity. This is what happens when we're skilled in the word of God. It's God's word that matures us. It's God's word that imparts discernment. It's as we use it, we live in it, we apply it, we live by it, that these spiritual senses are developed and we grow to maturity. You see, it's not enough just to have the Bible sitting on a shelf in your house or to carry it around, it must be opened. It must be appreciated. And you must come under the authority of God's word. You can't look at God's word and say, I like this and I don't like this. I want this, I don't want this. We have to put ourselves under the authority of God's word. It's a sacred book. We must say, God, you're the Alpha and the Omega. You know everything and I know a few things. But my wisdom is so finite. But you know creation. 
to the new world that is coming. You see it all in one glimpse. I know a few of my thoughts, but you know all my thoughts. I can see a few hearts, but God, do you see all hearts and even to the inside of hearts? You know all things. So I come under your authority because you wrote this book, knowing all things, and you do exactly what I would need today. God's word must be used, practiced, embraced. It must be allowed to direct our lives and instruct our lives. Like these Hebrew believers, we can become dull. There's a story told of C.H. Spurgeon, who was a preacher, dynamic preacher, started preaching when he was 15 years old. And by the time he was in his early 20s, he had a huge congregation in London, huge Never educated in anything but the word of God, but one of the most brilliant men, one of the most prolific writers ever, ever, is C.H. Spurgeon. And they said he was crossing a major street in London, and he was almost being run down by carriages and horses. And he just stopped. And people were observing him because they knew him, and they were watching him just stopped, his eyes closed in the middle of the street just being barely missed by these carriages. And when he crossed over the other side, some people approached him and said, you know, Pastor Spurgeon, what in the world were you thinking? What were you doing that was so dangerous? Instead of rushing across to get to the other side, he said, I wanted to, but I found, I I felt a cloud come between my Lord and I, and I could not go a step further until that cloud was lifted. You see, Spurgeon began to feel this dullness coming in to his heart and into his mind and into his senses. And he refused to go any further until that dullness was dealt with. And he was back in the presence of God, no separation. Spiritual dullness is something that needs to be dealt with. Because it will keep us from the great truths, the great blessings, the great experience, the great joy of Christianity. What is the remedy? What is the remedy? I told you I'd tell you the remedy. The remedy is to consider Jesus, the greatness of his person, the greatness of his condescension, that he is the great son of God, the beloved of heaven, who left heaven to come to earth to become a servant, even to the point of death for men. It is to see the greatness of his compassion, of his love for us, to see the greatness of his accomplishment that he has brought about the forgiveness of our sins, the greatness of what he now offers us, reconciliation to God, the holy of holies, that boldness, an empathetic and sympathetic high priest to listen to us. The word of God, living and powerful and the revelation of who God is. God's word gives us the greatness of Jesus. I have found when dullness sets into my life, I have to stop just like C.H. Spurgeon. Sometimes I need to change Bible translations and have it afresh. I've told you this before. I've I'm now in the NIV in my personal devotions, but I teach and study from the New King James. Sometimes I need to go to the New Living Translation. Sometimes I go to the ESV, HCSB. I 
I like to feel it refresh. And sometimes if I really want a long, long Bible study, I go to the Amplified because it just goes on and on and on, but really blows it up and it's awesome. But I need to do all I can to get to Jesus and to see Jesus. I shared this with you before, but I stay in the Gospels every day with my Bible reading. I'm in the Gospels because there was a point in my life when I lost sight of Jesus. I lost sight of Jesus. I got, I was in the Old Testament. I was really into the law. You know, it's kind of the time when I wanted to tell that guy, well, then go to hell if you want to, because that's what happens when you're in the law. And I had lost sight of the grace and the compassion of Jesus. So I decided I wanted to be in the gospels every day to see Jesus. Because you know what? And this is where I'm gonna end. Some of you are like, thank God. This is where I'm gonna end. I don't want to be like Mary and Joseph, who in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 50, were so distracted, so busy with duty and with ritual and with obligation, so dull that they did not miss the presence of Jesus for three days. Three days. And when they found Jesus, Mary said to him, why have you done this to your father and I? And he says this in effect, why have I done this to you? In other words, who left who? Who lost who? You see, we can go three days out, not even realizing that Jesus is not in our presence. And what did Mary need to do? She needed to look for Jesus. She needed to go back to where she had last seen him. She needed to look for him. And then she needed to observe him and his wisdom and his grandeur and realize that he was about his father's business, that he is the son of God. For some of us, the remedy for spiritual dullness is to say, as the Lord said to the church in Ephesus, go back, remember from whence you are fallen. When was the last time you felt Jesus? When was the last time you were passionate and sharp? Go back, go back to that place. Maybe it's a portion in the Bible where, oh man, last time I was in this book, Philippians or Hebrews, the Lord spoke to me so strongly. Or the last time I spoke to this woman or this friend, oh, I felt it so passionately. The last time I was down at the beach or I was sitting on the grounds of Calvary, or it was at this place. I felt it. I was passionate. I was on fire. Maybe it's something you need to start doing again. Oh, the last time, or when I used to play the guitar and sing privately to the Lord, or I used to exercise, or I used to take these walks. Oh, the Lord would speak to me. The last time I used to journal while I was doing my Bible, oh, the Lord used to speak to me. Sisters, it might mean going back. Moses had to approach the burning bush. Samuel had to go back to bed and wait for the Lord to speak to him again. There might be the place that you need to go back to. Mary and Joseph had to go back to Jerusalem, back to the temple, back to that place and find Jesus again. In this study in Hebrews, 
That's what we need to do. We need to find Jesus. And we need to get such a glorious vision of him that everything else in comparison pales. Everything pales to Jesus. Because spiritual dullness will rob us. And we don't want to be robbed because Jesus has great things for us ahead. Spiritual dullness will keep us from the blessings, experience, and joy of Christianity. The remedy is to consider Jesus, the greatness of His person, and the magnitude of His condescension, that He is the beloved Son of God who left heaven to come to earth to become a servant and live and die for all mankind. God wants to reveal to you the majesty of His great accomplishment through Christ and unfold His good, gracious, and eternal plans for us all. As we meditate on these things, we will keep ourselves in the love of God and guard ourselves against spiritual dullness. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll look at spiritual maturity as we continue our series, Our Great Faith, in the book of Hebrews with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.